So, um, <clears throat> Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says this, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. <clears throat> so they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day, so that they might accuse him. <clears throat> and he said to the man who had the withered hand, <clears throat> step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it, to kill. But they kept silent. <laughs> and when, when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter... James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. <laughs> and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How, how can Satan cast out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. See, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, assuredly, I say to you, all sins, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because, they said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, 
And standing outside, they said, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, sometimes... Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes things don't go, not just sometimes, (laughs) frequently things don't go the way that we want and the way that we plan. Often we look for things that we never see. I've, I've found that I think we we all probably have found ourselves at times uh, swimming in uh, in despair or in uh, confusion and yet somehow time and time again I find that you are You are holding us. My Father, will you teach us? Will you you make us into what you want? And I I suppose the the only real issue is that sometimes, sometimes I'm not trusting that you are doing that. And that's so dumb. Father, would you make us a, a family that's um, that are are willing and with confidence, saying that you are the potter and we are the clay. So, would you make of us? what pleases you because you alone are God and there is no other and there is nothing like you there is no one else like you nothing deserves your praise no one deserves your your glory your honor Father thank you (laughs) thank you for being with us Thank you for being with us this morning. Would you speak to us? I pray. Please do it, my Father, because it's you that we need. It's not It's not just another church service. It's you, Lord. It's communing with you. It's what we need. Thank you for being here, for being with your people, Lord. I pray that you would teach us today in Jesus' name. Please, Lord. Amen. 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 So I always thought it was interesting, fascinating uh, phrase uh, that is used sometimes about um, not wanting to be a statistic. Have you ever heard that? Somebody saying they didn't want to be a statistic. Usually it's used in like a, a, a phrase where somebody's saying that they avoided something bad. And you say, well, I didn't want to be a statistic or, or whatever. We don't want to, you don't want to end up being a statistic, you know, like they'll show some statistic about like drunk driving accidents and the deaths related to them or some other thing you know phrase that i've heard uh, used numerous times and always i always thought it was interesting because like doesn't matter <laughs> you're on one side of that statistic or the other side no matter what <laughs> happens anyways so i always thought it was a weird thing to say but um <clears throat> something happens here at the beginning of mark chapter 3 that is um it's fascinating to me, but it's a reminder to me that 
my life belongs to God and that he is able to do with me whatever he wants. And I think maybe in a more direct sense, maybe what I want to say is that, is that he is doing with me what he wants. If he is the potter and, and I am the clay, can he not make of us what pleases him, what he wants to make of our lives? And with us, it's a hard thing for me to think about because then I have to examine how I'm dealing with the people around me, how I'm how I'm wrestling with the discipleship of my children, and um, how I'm looking at my relationships with my spouse and with my family and others. Am I willing to say that God is in control? Am I? Maybe I should say, am I? Am I willing to believe that God is in control? And if He is, then what does that say about these? things? What does that say about these relationships? What does that say about, about um, what we do in Christian service? I always thought it was wonderful that Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, the very beginning of, of, um, of uh, his letters, Paul's like, listen, um, the person who, because they were all like, some of them were like, well, I'm of Paul. And some of them were like, well, I'm of Apollos, which, you know, and, and others were like, well, I'm of Cephas, which is Peter, you know, and they were, they were dividing themselves over this. I'm so glad that, you know, that we as the church of Jesus don't divide ourselves over which person that we follow anymore. I'm so glad we're over that now, you know, or which group we ascribe to or whatever. And then there was the other group that was like, well, I'm just of Jesus, right? Because that's the other side. Because we're like, well, <laughs> well, I just follow Jesus, right? You know. And he's like, no, just knock it off. <laughs> just <laughs> stop. You know? Why are you still so carnal, so of the flesh? He recognized that kind of mentality to be a, a sign of immaturity. But he reminded them that the person who plants the seed or sows the word of God is nothing. And um, the person who waters it is nothing. <laughs> and he's talking about Christian leaders in this sense. He's talking about those who invest in us by teaching us the scriptures is nothing. Is nothing. I love that so much. <laughs> You're nothing. Because it's God who gives the increase. Right? But that means that any one of us, in fact, every one of us has this great opportunity to be planting the word of God in the lives of the people around us, in our spouses and, and our children and, and, and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. And every one of us has the opportunity to be watering maybe something that they've heard from someone else, some other seed that had been planted uh, by another person in their life, maybe by a grandparent or, or maybe a time they went to church. And we can, we can water that seed by sharing, continuing to share the word of God with them. But it's God who gives the increase. And that statement is in itself a way of, of Paul saying, listen, it's out of my hands, right? I'm nothing. The best he could do was be faithful to just give the word of God to people around him. That was the very best thing that he could do for anyone around him. And indeed, it is the very best thing that I can do for my children, that I can do for my spouse, that I can do for you guys, is just to give you the word of God and to trust that God will do with his word what he wants in your lives. Because he is the potter. And we are just clay. Now, I bring that up because at the beginning of Mark 3, there's this situation that happens, another confrontation about the Sabbath day. And in this one, it's almost as if Jesus is, because he's so aware of this, he's the one who's like, step forward to the guy with the withered hand. He's like, come on, he's going to make an illustration of this guy. That's a hard thing maybe for me to wrap my head around. Because of what if God might want to do that with me. They were looking for ways to murder Jesus, to kill him. And Jesus says to this guy with the withered hand, because they were trying to find some way that he was violating their traditions or, or uh, violating the law. He said, step forward. I imagine this guy had a choice to make at that point, right? Like, you going to step forward when he says to step forward? <clears throat> Let's read the text again. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. He, his hand was 
uh, unable to be used is certainly the idea. So they watched him closely. And the they there uh, is it's, it's in the context of earlier on in, in Mark chapter 2. Um, so we find this, um, the they there being the Pharisees and other leaders in Israel. And we see later on that he mentions that very directly. It was the Pharisees and the Herodians got together and they plotted against him how they could kill him after this um, circumstance happened again. So the Pharisees were a more politically leaning uh, sect or group in Israel. They had more leanings in the political realm and Rome's authority in the area. They leaned more toward that and more toward the um, the Jewish legal system or legislation, more toward the, the law of Moses than uh, even the Sadducees did. Uh, but the Sadducees were primarily in charge of the religious system. They were primarily in charge of the priesthood itself at this time in the first century. The Herodians were a group of Jews who supported the dynasty of Herod. That's why they're called Herodians. Okay? Herod was not a Jewish person. He was kind of a half-Jewish person, and his children then were descended from that. He was an Idumean or a descendant of, of Edom, and Edomite uh, is sort of the, uh, the idea there of... Um, Herod being an Idumean, but Jesus entered the synagogue again. The synagogue, you guys know the synagogue was the place where the Jews would meet regularly in, in their cities uh, to worship God and to hear the Torah read. A man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They watched Jesus closely <laughs> to find out whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath day so that they could accuse him. I don't want to make this too self... Obviously, I don't want to make this really self-centered at all, but um, there is a reality to the fact that if you have publicly made it known that you want to follow Jesus, people will watch you, and they're constantly looking for ways to say, well, do Christians do whatever, and fill in the blank for some thing that you've done, <laughs> you know, should a Christian do this, or should a Christian say that, or whatever. Certainly that can happen. It happened here with Jesus. They were looking for ways to accuse him. Certainly their conscience had been afflicted by the truth that he, the truth bombs that he was dropping. <laughs> and so they were looking for ways to accuse him so that they could eventually have him killed. This one is fascinating to me. They're just watching him, and they know this guy has a withered hand. And they're just like, is he going to heal him? Because that would be breaking the Sabbath, according to our tradition. That would be breaking Shabbat. Healing, listen, healing a guy on the Sabbath day, helping this man with a withered hand, they considered to be breaking the Sabbath. Healing it. This is, this is what tradition frequently does. It brings us to this place where we lose compassion for people. And we become the very thing that Jesus is angered about here. We become hard-hearted because we think we've got to keep some statute over helping the people around us. <laughs> there have been many traditions related even around... The idea of keeping the Sabbath day now, fascinating to me uh, that uh, the Sabbath was a very special thing that God uh, gave, to, um, uh, gave to Israel. Very, very special particular thing that he gave to Israel. I want to read to you a um, passage here uh, from Exodus chapter 31. This is um, a reminder that God is giving to the nation of Israel. And I want you to listen closely because this really sets the tone for why Israel valued and looked at the Sabbath the way that they did. We remember the commandment and we think of like the Ten Commandments. One of them is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't do any work uh, on the Sabbath day, etc. And there were particular ways that they defined that. Some of those were based in the Law of Moses and others were based on traditions that had been developed over many years after the command was given. But listen to what God says about the Sabbath day. And and. What I want you to pay attention to is why it would have been such a valuable thing to the nation of Israel. Why would they see it as so vital, so important? And there's no record, at least that we know of, that God gave a commandment to any other nation or any other culture saying, Hey guys, take a day off. 
every week, right? Take a day to rest. Trust me, I'll provide for you. And, and that's extrapolated in the uh, seventh year rest that would happen in the 50th year jubilee that were all parts of the law of Moses. But it was rooted in this one day a week taking a break. One day a week. So in Exodus 31, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, this is verse 12 of Exodus 31. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who sets you apart. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Who was to keep the Sabbath throughout their generations? The children of Israel. And God said specifically, this is a sign that I'm giving between you and me that I'm making you a different people than everybody else. I'm sanctifying you. The Sabbath itself was a sign of that separation. Their keeping of the Sabbath then would be vital to them. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. And verse 17 says, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I love that. And also, People can excuse me why I believe God made everything in six days. <laughs> the Sabbath itself was such a vital part of life in, in Jewish history. In fact, still is. And we've mentioned that in, in a number of ways. Um, uh, still is. Uh, so much so that like there are Sabbath elevators that run on the Sabbath day on Saturday that go up and stop at every floor and come down and stop at every floor so that you don't have to kindle a fire by like pushing the button on the elevator or whatever, you know. So and there are other things. There are Sabbath settings on some of your some of your appliances, uh, if you look into that. Some of your appliances are actually made with Sabbath settings, that kind of stuff. Uh is um something that exists. Anyways, um the Sabbath was so vital, it was so important. But the thing that gets me, the thing that strikes me about this passage is that they're looking for ways to accuse him. And the thing that at this point that they're looking at, they'd already accused him uh, and his disciples because they were, you know, they took the heads of grain and they rolled them in their hands and they said that was violating the Sabbath day. And Jesus was like, listen, they're hungry, you know. Like, <clears throat> Healing somebody helping this man with a withered hand, they would consider it to be violating God's command not to work on the Sabbath day. See, because the, the thing I, that I really want to stress is that um, sometimes we, we try to simplify things by making them about some particular rule or some command and we neglect the fact that God is interested in our hearts being turned toward him and our hearts being turned toward loving our neighbors now I get that it's easier for me to keep some some particular command like don't heal people on the Sabbath day because that would be working that would be easier for me to do than humbling myself and sacrificing something to help someone on the Sabbath day it'd be easier for me to just say well God says I shouldn't work. Never mind person, you know, falling in a ditch and dying or whatever. God says I can't help people. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Right? That's contradictory to the spirit, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But it's easier to follow some uh, religious tradition that's been commanded of us. It's easier to, fr frequently easier to follow that than it is for us to sacrifice 
than it is for us to humble ourselves and help the people around us. He said to the man, verse 3, he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? What a question. <laughs> Which one is lawful? Is it, is it lawful? Is it okay to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil? Is it, is it lawful to save life on the Sabbath or to kill? They kept silent. Why would you keep silent? <laughs> They kept silent, and when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Just stop right there for a second and ask yourself this question. Do you think there are times when the Lord s still feels that way, maybe about, about us, about me? When my heart is hard toward my spouse or my kids, or my neighbor, or to the people in need in our in our society, where we have hardened our hearts. He had looked uh, when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. The thing that made Jesus angry was the fact that they had hardened their hearts to the people around them who were in need. And they were even using tradition, religious tradition, to justify their hardness of heart. Not only did they feel no need to help this man, not that they could necessarily, but they were looking for a way to accuse Jesus by having him help this man. That was the thing they were going to use to accuse him. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Hmm. He looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. <laughs> the simple reality that Jesus is able to do what needs to be done. Surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. <laughs> I feel like there are times when uh, there, there's a reality to me doing that as well. Saying, Lord, I, I, I feel like I'm incapable of, of doing the thing that you want me to do, but when I find myself in a place of, of obeying him, of setting my mind to do what he's commanded me to do, I find that he meets me there, and so I'm able to stretch my hand out, if you would. I'm able to do the very thing that he calls me to do, because he's the one who enables us. He's the one who strengthens us. He's the one who works in us to do uh, both to will and to do for his good pleasure, right? It's God who does that. Again, I come back to that question, uh, that thought, at least, that I, that I started with. He is the potter, the prophet says. And we are the clay. So much of my life has been spent trying to be the potter. <laughs> then the Pharisees went out uh, immediately, verse 6, immediately and immediately um, plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So this is being set in motion now, and it's linked to uh, what we're going to find later in the chapter. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And uh, Mark makes a big point of saying there was a lot of people following Jesus here at the, this early part of his ministry. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude. When they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. I think one of the things that fascinates me is just how incredibly practical this is. Right? Like, I mean, he could do whatever he wanted to do, but he said to the disciples, hey, let's make sure we have a boat ready because like, there's a lot of people here and let's make sure we have a boat so that we can get on the boat if we need to get on the boat so that they don't crush me. That's intensely just 
practical. <laughs> like, just a normal thing. I don't think that uh, God asks us to be stupid in our walk with him, right? I think that there are so many ways and areas where we ought to be wise about how we live and about the choices that we're making. And so much of the scriptures is, are, are dedicated to that. We use wisdom in making our decisions while at the same time acknowledging that God is the one that we trust. That our hope is not in our ability necessarily to always make the best decisions. I say this to Kelly sometimes and she probably hates it because I probably say it too much. But she's like, I don't know the best. She's like, what's the best? What should we do? What's the best thing to do? Most of the time my answer is, I don't know. I don't know what the best thing to do is. Like, there's an option here. There's an option here and an option here. And this will ha maybe have this consequence. And this maybe will have this one. And this could have this one. But I don't know what the best thing is. And sometimes it's not even an issue of what's best or not best. It's just like... They're just different things, you know. And so I find myself in this place where I have to rely. I, I either am um, trying to control everything, which sometimes happens, or, or I have to rely on the Lord. I have to rely on God and, to, and, and acknowledge. I say this, I've begun to say this to my kids uh, as well. Like, um, don't lean on your own understanding. Like, if there is something that I think that we need to hear in our age of, like, Facebook and WebMD and all of our uh, expertise, <laughs> don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. Acknowledge God, and He will direct your steps. He will direct your path. There's a, a comfort in that. But, but there's also a, a difficulty because the Lord directing my steps doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. In fact, the testimony of Scripture is frequently that when He is, He leads us into trouble <laughs> to train us, to refine us, to purify our faith. But the the cry of, of human society seems to be, and the cry of my own nature frequently is, Lord, I want it easy. And so much of our prayers seem to be rooted, not, I've, I've learned that many of my prayers are not so much related to, Lord, strengthen me, Lord, make me what you want me to be in this situation. Many of them are just, get me out of this situation. Lord, rescue me. And certainly the, the Lord hears and the Lord knows, right? He knows our sorrows. He knows that place and that heart cry, right? <clears throat> but again, I say, who is the potter? He told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him for... He healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So in the midst of all of this, what we might call popularity in Jesus' ministry, he's going to do something that seems weird. He's going to withdraw from multitudes of people and call twelve of them to be with him. And then send them out with a particular uh, mission and a particular authority from him. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain, he called to him those, um, up on the mountain, he called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Just stop right there for a second. I'd love that because that's the very first thing. He called 12 that they might be with him. Yes, they were going to be going out and doing this ministry, quote-unquote ministry, that the Lord was calling them to. But this first thing. He appointed twelve that they might be with him. And, and that he might send them out to preach. And to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So they're almost <laughs> really secondary. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. We've talked about so many of these guys as we've gone through Matthew's gospel and others. This was not the, the cream of the crop. 
right? This is not the this is not the smartest people in society. This is not the best. This is not the most well equipped for what we think should be done. But as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, look around you. Not many wise, not many noble are called. Because God wants to put to shame the wisdom of the wise by using somebody like me. <laughs> I feel like saying, sorry, Lord, most of the time. Like, sorry, it's me. <clears throat> James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder. That was not a compliment. Right? At one point, they tried to go, and one of the cities they were sent to didn't receive the message of Jesus. The kingdom was at hand. And so they said, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, that's what, that's what Elijah did. I know that's why they said it. Right, because that's Elijah prayed and fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. So you guys might remember that story there when he confronted the uh, prophets of Baal and, and others there, you know, on Mount Carmel. But um, I, I think that's probably where they got the idea from. But like, they'd never done that before. <laughs> and they'd never seen Jesus handle a situation like that before. But they were like, they didn't receive us, Lord. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Trying to be tough guys, I guess. I don't know. To whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, uh, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. So he called them together. There were multitudes of people around him, so much so that he's like, let's get a boat in case we get crushed. And then he separates himself from the multitudes. He calls 12, and then they go into a house. When the multitude came together again, verse 20, following the story, the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard, they heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. When his own people heard about what was happening, the multitudes, the crowds of people gathered around him, all of this stuff. So much of the, they're in this house now, and there's so many people there. They can't even eat dinner. They can't eat bread. And his own people heard about it. I'm like, what is Jesus doing? Can you imagine a place where somebody is saying about Jesus that he's out of his mind? <laughs> that was what his own people were saying, right? He grew up in this area. Jesus would say, a prophet is not without honor except among his own country, among his own family, his own people. And this is a, sort of an illustration of that. His own people get there and they're like, he's out of his mind. He's just, he's crazy. What is happening? As sometimes is the case whenever we are doing what God wants us to do. There are those who won't understand. And sometimes they can be people close to us. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, verse 22. So his own people said he's out of his mind. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Remember, there are crowds of people, tons of people following Jesus and listening to him. But the people that came from Jerusalem, his own people, they said he's out of his mind. The um, scribes who came down from Jerusalem sort of to examine him. In this official capacity, they said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons, or he has the Lord of the flies. And it's by the ruler of demons that he casts out demons. Now, Jesus' response to this is going to be like, That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? <clears throat> but uh, that, that was his uh, response to it, as we're going to read. But this is the thing. This here is the moment where Jesus says, uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. And he, he identifies exactly what that is. Because I've, I've heard people try and, I don't know, I guess sometimes we try and make up what we think that means, you know. But I think if you just look at the context, it's pretty clear uh, what he's talking about. They said that he, Jesus, was doing everything that he was doing by the power of Satan. The work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, they were saying, was the work 
of an evil spirit. They were blaspheming the Spirit of God. And he's going to say that very directly. So he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. This is, the, I, uh, I heard this for a lot growing up in, in my life. And I always wondered at those license plates that have like the, the vanity plates that have the um, like Florida, University of Florida, and then FSU on one side. And they have like the thing in them and they say, a house divided. I'm like, what are you, Jesus said, a house divided can't stand. Like, what are you trying to ruin your marriage? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and I, I get that it's just a, you know, whatever thing. But I always was confused by why, why anybody would want to do that. It always confused me. If that's you, then, then sorry. <laughs> you know, just, it was always confusing. However, there certainly is a lesson in that, right? Like, uh, there is this reality to being on the same page in our marriages, in our families, right? And it takes effort, it takes time, it takes energy to talk and to examine and to, to, it takes compromise. It takes us changing our minds. It takes us forgiving one another, right? Hmm. If a house divided is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. He's like, this is the parable that he's told. He's like, listen, it's like if you go into like this strong guy's house, you're not going to take his stuff unless you bind the guy, you know, unless you stop the, the strong man, you know, like why would Satan cast out Satan? He's just saying this, you're, you're reasoning that the, all the good things that I'm doing, that I'm doing that by the power of Satan, that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan is nonsense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And he continues, um, Verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of man. I just want you to soak in that just for a minute. Isn't that so sweet? All sins will be forgiven. That's so sweet. And whatever blasphemies they may utter, that's good for many of us who have uttered some pretty ridiculous blasphemies. <laughs> But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because this is what he's talking about. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. That's what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. It's very direct, very specific, very particular thing. Some have said that this is something that only they could commit in the first century, and they did. I, I don't know that I really agree with that assessment. I think it's uh, even in, in a um, in the sense that if Jesus is the name of Jesus is the only name among men whereby we must be saved, if He is God, then rejecting Him, right, certainly would be sin that is not forgiven, right? Because it's in the acceptance of Jesus, it's in the laying our it's it's in the laying down of, of ourselves before Him. It's in our trusting Him that we find salvation, that He rescues us. So then, attributing the work of Jesus to Satan, <laughs> to, to, to demonic spirits, right? That certainly res would result in, as Jesus said, eternal condemnation. Because they said, He has an unclean spirit. I always thought it was an interesting um, type of logical argument that C.S. Lewis had uh, uh, when he said uh, it was called the um, uh, Lord Liar or Lunatic. I don't know if you've heard that line of reasoning before that Lewis used. That uh, He said, really, the truth about Jesus leaves us those on only those three options, right? He is either a liar because he said that he is God. He said that no man comes to the Father except by him. He said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He said all of these things. So either he is a liar, because that's not true, or he's a lunatic. He's out of his mind, like his own people said, right? Or he's a crazy person. Or if he's not one of those things, if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, he's not a crazy person, then he must indeed be the Lord. What he's saying is true. What he said was true. Like those are the, really the only options that we have to deal with him. He did not leave us 
this open place where we can patronize him by saying Jesus was a good teacher. What? <laughs> Jesus said, lay everything down and come follow me. Jesus claimed to be God in a human body. Like he didn't leave us that, that other stuff open, right? He's either a liar or he's a crazy person or he indeed is Lord. And of course he is <laughs> the Lord, right? He is the Lord. But they said to him, he has an unclean spirit. Then, I think it's, again, seems pretty pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Then, verse 31, his brothers and his mother came. Unless we forget that Jesus did have brothers. He also had sisters from uh, Joseph and Mary. His brothers and his mother came standing outside. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And the multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. And we'll find uh, certainly um, a little later at the cross and then developed further in um, the letters of the New Testament, this concept, this reality that... Um, one of the things that Jesus was doing and that he continues to do is to make a new family out of us. Sometimes we get so professional about what the church is. We get so, I mean, for lack of a better term, so corporate. But at the very bottom of this thing about what we're doing in meeting together and sharing our lives together is that Jesus said the world will know that we are following him by the way that we love each other. (laughs) That's a challenge because sometimes God brings into his family people that... um, don't act the way I would like them to act. (laughs) Don't say the things I'd like them to say. (laughs) They, They do things that maybe I, maybe I don't like. Maybe they're different than me. But we've read it a couple of times. I just want to bring it up again. We've read it a couple of times recently. I, I want to bring it up again. Certainly at the cross, we're all on this level place, but the idea of reconciliation, of God bringing together, bringing together all of us on this level playing field, saying, I, I want you to love each other. And, and of course, we, don't also, we also don't get to define what that, what that love is. It's God who uh, defines that love for us. But Paul says here at the end of Galatians 3, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in the Messiah, Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is, there, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And it, it drops us all down so that we are called to this place where we're supposed to lose the arrogance that we have related to our, our own culture, our ethnocentricity and... Um, we're to lose the, the arrogance that we have about our own traditions as if they are elevated or better than others. Or maybe even our own personalities. And find ourselves in a family where we say, how can I serve? How can I help? Again, I ask the question, who is the pot? Who is the potter? <laughs> First Corinthians 13 says this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
I think of many scenes uh, of churches with people, not just churches, but other scenes where people are making a big shout, sometimes in tongues, <laughs> in an unknown tongue. But if I have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, can you imagine being in that place where you understood all knowledge and all mysteries and where you had all faith so that you could just move mountains? We'd look at that person and we'd be like, he is like the chief Christian there is, right? <laughs> and Paul says if I had all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love I am nothing what a view I am nothing with all the production that those good works might accomplish I am nothing if I have not love And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, why would you give your body to be burned? <laughs> Think martyrdom here. Though you lay your, your life down as a martyr for Jesus. If I have not love, if I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. <laughs> makes me think of this line from uh, this uh, musician, Dave Bazan, uh, Pedro the Lion. If all that's left is duty, I'm falling on my sword, he said. <clears throat> Sometimes people do things out of duty, but, but not out of love. Paul said, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long it was this text that for me as a, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid when I was getting ready to get married <laughs> and people said, you're so dumb. <laughs> you're just a kid. It was this text that for me really set the tone. I said, you know, I, I just, love doesn't end. So if, if, I, if I love, then, then it'll be fine. Love suffers long and is kind. Now don't misunderstand me. I fail miserably every day. Love is patient and kind. Yikes. <laughs> right? <laughs> See, it's in reading this that I look to the Lord and I look to, I look to God and I, I realize that this describes to us His character. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. <laughs> well, if there's anything that's going to make us feel like a failure today, it does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Think of the times when somebody does something and I'm provoked by it. I don't have to be. He's not provoked. Thinks, he thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity or sin, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Love hopes all things. Maybe the idea is that hope, the idea is of hoping for the best in all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Always fascinated me. Her love never fails. Love never ends. Verse 8 says, 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. Love never ends. Always wondered when people said, well, the reason why we got divorced was because we fell out of love. Like, what kind of love is that? Like, what? Does, not not anything that I read about in the scriptures, you know. 
But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be. I shall know just as I also am known and now remain or now abide faith hope love but the greatest of these is love so chapter 14 begins pursue love <laughs> pursue love um the person who says he loves god and does not love his brother is a liar, John says in First John. Because how can we love God whom we haven't seen if we don't love our brother whom we have seen? <laughs> Those are challenging words. And they bring us back to this idea that what God did in rescuing us was he brought us into his family, that we belong together with him. And we come to like this table, the communion table, where we eat of the same bread and drink of the same juice. And we share this table not only with each other, but with other congregations in other places who do the same. We come to the same table, right? We all are partaking together in Jesus, sharing together in what Jesus has done, glorifying God in what Jesus has done. This is one of the things that I love so much about coming to this table, that I love about communion, is that we share together with, not only with each other in this, but also with other fellowships, with, with other believers around the world who share in this same thing. And then also those who lived before us, those who came before us for the last 2,000 years, who also shared in the same thing. In this way, we, we remember Jesus. We remember the sacrifice that he's made for us, the demonstration of God's love for us. God loved us so much that he laid down the life of his son for us. And we hear his words when he says, Come, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And as I read 1 Corinthians 13, I find myself recognizing my own failure. <laughs> and at the same time rejoicing in the fact that there is a God of perfect, unadulterated love. And He is the potter. He's the potter. Guys, He is the potter. I get that maybe I sit right now, I sit in this incredible awareness that I am not, I am not where I wish I was every day <laughs> in my obedience, in my walk with the Lord. But I rejoice in this fact that God is at work, that God is able to shape and to, to make of me what pleases him. And if he says to me, like he says to that man with the withered hand, step forward, then I want to be the one saying, I'm going to step forward. <laughs> and just trust that. I, I want to trust that uh, he's going to do uh, what is right and he's going to do what is good. But it doesn't always mean that. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't always mean that it's going to be safe. And I know that you want everything to be safe. And easy. But I won't make you that promise. In fact, I'll promise you that in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. And if he is in you, he is able to and is doing that very same thing in you. Who is the potter? He is the potter, and we are the clay. Is that okay, guys? I hope it is. <laughs> Father, will you teach us to trust you? As we come again to this table this morning, would you work into us healing and health? Would you heal our bodies, Lord, where we are sick? And even as we consider some around us whom we love, Lord, would you heal them? Father, meet us here.
me that seat at the table again, I pray. Would you heal us, Lord? Where we are broken inside, <laughs> where our spirits are weak and frail, where we are wearied and sick with our own sin, and sometimes with the effects of, of the sin of others on us, Lord, would you heal us? It is you whom we need. It's you, God. And I, I hope that in this moment we could just, just be with you. Just, just dwell with you. <laughs> just, I don't know, be aware of the fact that you're with us. The reality in a very special way. Father, I praise you. I praise you, Lord. <laughs> um...